Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to our Wednesday Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today I'm with, oh, and you know what? I was supposed to ask you this beforehand. I'm going to try, but correct me if I'm wrong. Monica, I get correctly. Basio? Basio. 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 Monica Basio. I've I've only known Monica for like (laughs) 25 years or something like that. I should be able to get her last name right, but I don't really find myself saying your last name very often. Monica's a a two-time silver medalist in the Paralympics in hand cycling, five-time world champion. She competed in both hand cycling and in uh, and in Nordic skiing, in sit skiing, which which is we will get into it. Nordic sit skiing is absolutely positively brutal. We want to we want to talk about that a little bit. At least it's for it's brutal for me, but. Part of, you know, we often do this with the four S's of resilience and Monica brings a part on the, on the community side of things. Not only has she been an athlete, but she's become a, someone who is an advocate for the athletes. She's on the, on the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee's Athlete Advisory Board. She is working with the IOC's Athlete Entourage, helping to empower athletes, helping to empower their people, helping to make their transition into work better. When you, I often say that I joined a group that I didn't want to join, and I became an advocate for a group that I didn't want to join. I mean, I never wanted, you didn't want to have a spinal cord injury. I didn't want to have a spinal cord injury. Is that something that you think about? Do you think about that, that my life took this weird turn and now suddenly I'm an advocate for, for a lot of people that I, I wouldn't have planned to be for. Yeah, absolutely, actually. And um, I very much would like to forget my disability. And I think sport is something that allowed me to do that, you know, getting in the ski and getting out on the trails or getting out on the bike. Uh, so now that I am an advocate, I, and honestly, really in how it marries into the current uh, or new IPC strategy of really inclusivity, and certainly in the cultural change that we're seeing in the world today, of, in, you know, equity and uh, human rights. And so I, I, it's kind of serendipity that way that uh, I am an advocate for those things, although that was never my true motivation. It was really, you know, for me to compete at my best physically and not think about my disability. And honestly, I still don't think about my disability, uh, you know, if I were at work or school or church or what have you, you know, it's, yeah, I don't. You're doing like, what you're doing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I often say that to people because people say, oh, it must be so hard to get around. I'm like, you know, I don't encounter something on a daily basis that I can't do. I mean, rare, very rarely. Do I? And I'd imagine it's the same thing for you. But in the beginning, was was it different? I know for me, it was different. I mean, you came out of the hospital. Did you know anybody in a wheelchair, anybody uh, with a disability? Did any of your friends know anybody? You're making me think way back. Gosh, it's been a long time. 28 years. Yeah, you know, something made me think about that. I was reading an article about resilience and um, grit and how uh, it was Eli Wolf, if you follow him on. uh, Yeah. So uh, he put a New York Times article and really how people with spinal cord injuries are resilient. And, uh, you know, thinking about my life and I thought just about getting out of the hospital and how it was so weird and so strange. But yet, you know, I... I popped right in like, okay, well, this is how I do it. This is how I drive. This is how I am going to be at school or, you know, cooking dinner. And so it, it wasn't really insurmountable for me at all, actually, which is kind of an odd thing. And maybe that's not the case for other people. It's interesting. So you were in California, right? You you had your accident in California. Did you, did you stay in the hospital in California as well? skiing accident as well. So we have that in common. Yeah, I was at, we used to, it was 
then known as Sierra Ski Ranch. Yeah, went skiing up for the day um, in South Lake Tahoe. Uh, did my surgery at Waho Washoe Medical Center. And then um, since I grew up in New Jersey and all my family was there, I was able to transfer my health insurance and I did my rehab at um, Kessler in Orange, in New Jersey. Kessler. Okay. Which yeah. is one of the big places, really. I mean, one of the one of the go-to places. That's Christopher Reeve kind of made it a little bit more famous than than you did, I guess, apparently. But yeah, he did. <laughs> I tried. I think you did. I, I'm sure you did a great job. He came in with a little bit, a little bit more recognition than than probably all of us combined. Really, is what it comes down to. So you so you did that at Kessler, and then did you did you go directly back to school, or you went back to school out in California, right? I did. Yeah. So I spent the summer uh, with my uh, living at my brother's house, which was most accessible, and there's some good stories there uh, in the family of me, you know, doing outpatient rehab and my ortho had me wear the brace for, um, gosh, I think it was six months or seven months or something, a long time. Yeah. So, and then I and went by back. Brace, you mean, this is like a full turtle shell. This is a it's plastic a turtle. turtle shell with, with Velcro closures on each side that you can't bend over. You can't, you can't do anything in six months. And during the summertime too, yeah awful just sweating yeah so uh you know i think it um i my body has muscle memory of what good posture is right or it used to but uh yeah so i did new jersey for the summer and then went straight back to uh california and it was santa cruz it was much more uh physically accessible uh in environment and yeah returned to school and so you were in school Prior to that, okay. Yeah. How, how was that? I know for me, it was almost like, it was almost like a parade kind of thing when I returned to school. It was, it was this amazing experience where, you know, there's a bit of, there was a bit of me that worried when I go back, what are people going to think? And when I went back, everybody's like, this is so great that you're here. And, 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 and it was, it was sort of this celebration that just, uh, you know, it was like this groundswell that just kind of pushed me along. Was, was it a similar kind of thing for you or? It was just, again, it was really, you know, unremarkable, frankly, it was, yeah, it was accessible. And I think back now, and I still use this analogy that some teachers, and maybe you've had this experience um, in life, that there's those that are curious and ask about your disability and what that's cool, how do you do this, how can I accommodate it? And then there's some that, you know, sort of pretend it doesn't exist. And I, I find that that's been consistent in my last 28 years, um, how people, you know, interpret the uh, wheelchair. But yeah, it was it was great, actually. I, I loved it. It was super, you know, my school is accessible. My teachers were so, I, you know, I'm in occupational therapy, so. And were you in there before, too? I, I was on the pathway. I hadn't started my, my, okay. uh, my uh, curriculum yet, but yeah, so you're in a cohort, so you're with the same people throughout the whole program. So it was very supportive. It was very positive. You know, I, I didn't have any negative stigma with the disability, just, you know, it was inconvenient, but yeah. Right. Well, for me, I found like, I found that I ended up having to, you know, I'd have the people ask me, well, do you need to push up this hill? Do you need me to hold the door for you? Do you want me to take your tray at dinner? That kind of stuff, which is some of what you get to have sort of the, the education, right? Of like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good, you know, or, or whatever. And that's where in some ways you become an advocate almost immediately, don't you? Where nobody knows. Yeah. Yeah. It's very um, much. And certainly within uh, working in occupational therapy and in a rehab setting, it, it's a social role model is sort of how I came into it, you know, not choosing that, but I realized, you know, that, after several years, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to say, yeah, open the door. You know, I, I don't feel like my hands are full or what have you, but um, very much, uh, I think you're a social role model when you're out there and, you know, being independent and doing it and it's normal and 
you know, what are my choices? Uh, but I realized that's not the same for everybody. So. Right. How did, how did the sport thing come about? When did you, you went through school and focused on school or did you start, did, when did you start riding? Cause it was really uh, cycling that was first, right? Yes, it was. And, um, I definitely focused on school. I think I started riding. I got a bike, um, in Santa Cruz. It's great. You know, a lot of cycling and my now husband, a big cyclist, and I had friends that were in the biking community. So did, you know, it was very much recreational, very much to save off secondary, you know, illnesses that you're taught, you know, the, the fear of God of, you know, don't, skip your weight shifts or what have you, you know, uh, where your support sucks. So I was very, you know, wanting to exercise, but not in a competitive way. So I just did the social group rides, rode with my husband, friends, and yeah, so. Was he being in school? With you? No. Yeah. No, uh, no, so. Okay. Interesting. And so, so when did it become competitive? Oh, 98, 1998, I think. So I broke my back in 92, 98. I think there was an opportunity. It was really uh, a lot of change, a lot of uh, new growth in the Paralympic movement, but uh, more closer to home, very much about cycling. And I just would go to races that people were just getting together and see how I did. And then I went to this international race in Blois, France. I remember it vividly. It was quite an experience. Um, and quite an yeah. experience. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, it was really uh, a little bit of cowboy kind of style in the the cycling team and the coaching, and it was um, yeah, not as certainly not as organized and structured as it as you would think of a national team is today. So um, that's what I meant by interesting. It was yeah. But it was international, so I went, and you know, certainly people were there that I am still in touch with today. Actually, you know, lifelong friends. I'm sure you have that same experience. Um, but yeah, so I was good at it. So I just kept kept going. You kept going, and and so so what's the so what was the what was the was it because you were good? Was it because it was fitness? What really pushed you to? To, to get into the sport? Why was it a social part or? Initially it was fitness, very much so. I, I like that. I love the endurance. I love having that feeling of pushing, you know, your body to the limits. So that was very much, you know, the, the, and what uh, pushed me. But, you know, the, since that first trip in Blois, there had been national races organized where you're seeing the same people and it was very much social and you become friends with them and, you know, you share your training and coordinate your trips on where you're going to ride and cycling trips. And so it very much became social. And I think that kept me going with it, you know. It's it's a different world, right? I mean, you were talking about the the pressure reliefs and these kinds of things that you have that fear of God in some ways of leaving the hospital. That uh, I'm such a fragile being, and if I if I don't lift myself up every 15 minutes, the the my skin is going to deteriorate, and I'm going to spend months lying on my stomach waiting for it to heal, and it's never going to heal quite right, and and all of these things. I mean, it's it's a different, but for me, it was when I got into sport, it, it was kind of like when I felt normal again, too, that it was sort of normal people. And maybe it was, you know, it was, it was biking on three wheels as opposed to biking on two wheels. But at the same time, it was still competition. And it was the same. That what was it, was it that same kind of thing for you? Is that what you mean by the social part of it or? Yeah, I mean, well, social meaning, you know, you traveled and you hung out with the same people and you would race, but then you'd go out to dinner and, you know, uh, so that part, you know, that camaraderie part of it um, was maybe more prevalent than the competitive, but certainly, you know, 
given the years that I've competed, the, the competitiveness, you know, came out pretty quickly, you know, and it, it didn't deter the socialization, but uh, that became more the driving force. Were you always an athlete, like growing up? No, no, just recreational softball in high school. And yeah, yeah. When did, when did Sadler's happen? So Sadler's Alaska Challenge, did that happen before the national team or, or when did that happen in your whole thing? And you're going to have to describe this race to people because I don't think they're going to believe it. Yeah, Sadler's is its own entity for sure. And those people that have done it can really appreciate it. Oh, some great stories back, you know. I think it was concurrently, right? The, again, back at the, you know, after 1998, that first, you know, team still in development and they were trying to organize into more structure on the national level. So there was this, uh, U.S. hand cycling circuit. So it was sort of concurrently. Then Sadler's was every summer. No, Sadler's is um, a furniture store in Anchorage. And I don't even know if they're still in existence. They were the biggest sponsor for uh, many years, but it started as a wheelchair race and it started as nine days riding from Fairbanks to uh, Anchorage. And this is it used to be called the Midnight Sun Marathon. Right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it was Midnight Sun. Yep, and sorry. so is that summer solstice? So it's the longest day of the year? Well, you know, up there, they're all long those days. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, honestly, such great memories from that. I did, I did it five times. Oh my. And hold on, hold on. So it was, it, was, yeah. it was Fairbank to Anchorage. Is that what it was? It was. But it's, you know. It, and how far is that? I don't remember. I it's less than five. It's, like, it's four, 450, 450 miles, maybe? Something like that. I thought I, I had 340 in my mind. Okay. And, 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 it's, and it's nine days, right? So it was like. Well, it started as nine days. I never did it when it was nine days. Um, that was really hard. I was working at the time and just to get that much time off and. Um, uh, be, well, let me backtrack. So it's a whole experience. So it was nine days and you do it in a camper van. So you arrive in, in Anchorage and you are all, all the uh, participants are sorted up in pairs with a couple of staff people that each have their own RV and uh, RV ing i guess is a verb up in alaska and in many parts of the the country but i was first exposed to this culture so it was kind of a new thing for me but yeah so you drove up to fairbanks and then you started the race and you would stop along the way so let's say you did i don't know 60 80 miles a day um i can't remember the exact uh mileage but you would do a distance day and then you stayed in the RV, like in an RV park, you know? And so uh, in parked in these gravel campsites, I guess. <laughs> so like, you know, I just, yeah, I, I think I only did that one. My first year was in the RV and then they switched to hotels, which I was much more comfortable with. It was, definitely more my speed. <laughs> the RV was hard because they're not accessible. So you're transferring, right? So you're gritty, you know, you ride 80 miles in wind and rain and what have you, big wind. And then you Hills, right? yeah, sleep in an RV. And then you have to go to the shower and you have to wheel through the gravel and yeah so there were just all sorts of built-in challenges there with that <laughs> you did this and you won it five years so i mean it's yeah super difficult but at the same time you kept coming back yeah it's what really, brought you back well alaska's beautiful and i really would absolutely recommend it for anyone uh you know, when they had the race to do it, just to experience that, because you stop along the way, as I said, but you stop and you are sharing dinner with a community, you know, oh, what was the first one? Nanana, right? So 
the local people or local um, Lions Club would host a dinner. And so you're, it's such a cultural experience that you're meeting these people and, you know, eating. I think that was the first time I had moose in the stew that I didn't know about until after I ate it. And so it's, it was super fun. And again, back to the social component, because these are people that you, I, I knew from racing prior and then you are on this adventure together so i might not be riding with carlos but you know at the end of the day we're sharing dinner we're sharing drinks we're doing the stories and then getting ready for the next day so it's very much about that aspect for me that's what kept me coming back right and and going back to to alaska one it's 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 wide open i mean it is it is, even though these are populated areas for Alaska, you're going through places where there's really not much of anybody. There's a ton of wildlife. There are bears. There are, you know, Moose. it's raining. There's super hilly. Yeah. I've never done it. I've just heard the stories about this race. And it just, it is, in my mind, it's the who's who of like the cool, tough people. Tough. It's yeah, there's some grit needed for sure. <laughs> you wake up every morning, okay, I'm ready to go. Here we go. Oh, it's raining and it's a 45 mile an hour headwind the whole way. Always. And it's uphill the whole time. And you're like, all right, I am super excited to get, but it's but it's that payoff at the end. The, the, the sort of everybody gets there and goes, what did you think when we got to mile seven and and all of a sudden it was a torrential downpour and what did you, what did you do? You know, I mean, these are the stories that keep yeah. going, isn't it? Like you're sharing it with everybody. Oh, definitely. It's very much a shared experience because you ride together. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking as you're riding and eating and drinking and, you know, you get the views of the mountain and yeah, it's, yeah, it's it was an awesome experience, and honestly, the people who put it on, you know, they you you felt like a rock star when you came into these small towns. So everyone celebrated you, and it was super great. Which is not the case in a lot of other races. Not nobody really notices who you are, oftentimes, and so this you're totally celebrated as somebody as somebody cool, and I think they respect what you're doing when. But you you started as a cyclist and you competed in three Paralympics, right? Four Paralympics. Four. Four Paralympics. You competed in four Paralympics, but you competed in cross-country skiing before you competed in hand cycling. Hand cycling was your first sport, but then you got into cross-country skiing. Was it because you decided at Saddlers that you were just flat out tough and you decided that cross-country skiing was the way to go? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. No. So I moved from California where, you know, my primary activity was cycling um, and moved to Colorado and really wanted to have some sort of endurance exercise in the winter. And that's how I got exposed to cross country skiing actually with Candace took me out for my very first time. Yeah. Can you describe your ski, your cross country ski, because you are in a wheelchair spinal cord injury. So how does someone in a spinal cord with a spinal cord injury do cross country skiing? There's no, there's no skating. There's no diagonal. How do you, how do you do it? What's, what's going on? What does it look like? So it's, um, sit skiing is what we call it. So you have, I have uh, a simple bucket similar to a, a monoski bucket molded to me mounted on a simple, square frame and you know my feet are tucked underneath me um not so much in a wheelchair position wheelchair racing position um more upright and uh mounted on two regular cross-country skis and the poles are cut down and the motion is just pure double pulling a lot of pulling the whole time just a lot of trunk pull yep. pull pull and I, I have done this a few times. I actually have one. Uh, it, it is it is enjoyable. I'm giving it a bit of a hard time, but that's probably because I'm really not that good at it. And and I remember going out my first time and, and I kind of pulled and I'd race wheelchairs. And so there was this hill and I, I kind of hammered up this hill and went, okay, all right, good. Like, like in, in racing wheelchairs, then you get the payoff. And I got to the top and went, oh no. Like- You still have to pull. <laughs> 
I'm like, I'm, I'm going to die on this thing because it's just, it's, there's no shock. It's just these two. I mean, it's almost like envision that you take a, a like a cafeteria chair yeah. and, and mount it onto two skis is kind of what this thing felt like. And, and you can't turn. And I was in the tracks and I felt like one of those, it's in Park City, so I felt like one of those runaway mining carts ah. in the tracks, like trying to stay in the tracks and thinking that event, because they always, they never go completely straight. They always have that little turn and I'm thinking, I'm going to end up upside down. It, how do you do that? How do you do the turns? Yeah. How do you do the downhills? The $100,000 question. Um, you know, ask, you'll, you'll get a different answer from every sit skier, however. So given your uh, level of ability, so someone who's the double amp that can uh, sit ski, you know, they have the ability to just pop out of the track and then they can really use their hip and their trunk to shift their weight. So, um, um, you know, T12, pretty textbook. So I could fake it, you know, so you're right though at the bottom of every hill there's a 90 degree turn it seems right so <laughs> you used your weight a lot of weight shifting and you're pulling yeah so that's yeah it's not exact science <laughs> and and we're talking about going downhill right now and downhill at least you have some gravity working for you I actually did a did a little event at one point with mark mast and he said well can you side slip and i was like yeah, like I've been I've been snow skiing my whole life. I can I can side slip. I know how to do that. He said, "Well, that's what you do going around the turn. Like go in and just slide it around the turn." And I was like, "Okay, that works a little." And out out of the track. This is out of the track, obviously. But it, but then when you think about it, going downhill, okay, you do have that fear of I, I'm going to die or I'm going to. I mean, I've had the fear like at the Park City at the golf course that I'm going to end up in the little lake, the little pond that's right there, sort of sort of angling into the pond and I'm going along. Okay, don't end up in the pond. Don't end up in the pond. Don't end up in the pond. And but it's but it's the turns going or going on the flat or going uphill that you're going along and then you have to go up the hill and and it's almost like I stop pretty much to turn and then I have to go uphill. Uh, I had all this momentum and now I don't have any momentum at all. So to me, it's a it's a brutal sport that you just have to be out in front of it the whole time and, and figuring out how to how to do it technically. It's so 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 you competed in first games was Torino, right? Yeah, yeah. 2006. How was that? And and you also did biathlon. I did. In Torino I did. But I had learned quickly that I should focus on one or the other, not, <laughs> so bi biathlon's a tough sport for sure. You know, I was good at shooting, but scooting and shooting and skiing, you know, just out the back and it was, yeah, humiliating. And yeah, <laughs> I did much better in my cross country race. Describe biathlon though, because a lot of people probably don't know. It's so popular in Europe, but we don't see that much of it here in the US. Yeah. How does it work? So, uh, well, biathlon, so you ski and you shoot. And so you um, have a, um, what are they? The able body, uh, they have a 20, what do they have? Can't remember. Like what kind of, what kind They're of? They're gone. Yeah. So, I, but, I don't know. yeah. So for the para, they, you don't carry your gun at all. So the, you'll do a loop and then you come into the shooting range. The coach hands you your uh, air rifle and you, you know, shoot and then you ski off. Right. But how, so what is the distance? What's your, what's your heart rate coming into the, into the shoot? And what's the objective? How do you have to, what do you have to shoot? Yeah. So there's different um, distances. So, and the, I think there's a sprint now, which is a two and a half K. So that's obviously quick that you do a lap, you shoot and another lap and you're done. Um, the 1K lap and then shoot and then another 1K lap and then. Yeah. So that's obviously really short. And then so. But the you're also going really fast. Right. Exactly. Right. And then there's um, 
a 5k and a 10 and i think that's now at 12k so that you'll have different um you'll have more shooting opportunities as you know the race increases and then the longest distance you get a, instead of doing a penalty lap so sorry let me back up so if you're you're doing your lap and you get your five shots and you miss three of them then you have to go into what's called the penalty loop you know, which is just a side of the shooting range. And, you know, for every shot that you miss, you have to do a lap. So you're right there, everyone sees you, you see your competitors going in or not. Um, but in the distance race, you don't have the penalty loop and you just get a time, uh, you know, deduction for each shot that you missed. So the goal is to shoot clean and ski fast and win the race. Well, that sounds like a great goal. And it's yes. super easy right now as we're sitting here comfortably in our homes without having yeah. our heart rate at, at 180 or 200 or yeah. whatever you're coming into this and then trying to concentrate, trying to master your breathing. I mean, this is where it's a really cool sport in a lot of ways, right? That yeah, very much so. And so you can really have a lot of appreciation to see, you know, people who are successful at it. And it's not, you know, maybe some people might think that you're trying to reduce your breathing, but it's really about shooting in between your breaths. So it's more of controlling your uh, heart rate and your breathing. Right, which makes it super, which makes it really hard. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But these are fit people, you know, they can handle it. They're, you know. <laughs> that's, that's where it's, it's really exciting to watch it. But, but to do it, I've actually, I did it once and it was kind of funny. I just did it with that same thing that I did with Mark Mast where it was over at Soldier Hollow and it was just oh, yeah. like around like, it was probably maybe 400 meters or something like that. Maybe like the size of a track. And it was, it was with a bunch of veterans. They were doing some, some veteran, you know, learned to learn to cross country ski kind of thing. And the funny part for me was that they were all so locked in, right? These are all veterans who are coming in and they're just talking about their guns. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, this one's, this one's high, right? This one's, and I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Like, yeah, I, they I'm like to shoot. To close, <laughs> you know, just to, and, and it was, it was kind of funny, but it was fun to see that. And then obviously for you in a sit ski, you're shooting prone, right? So you, so you yeah. tip over and then you're, and then you're shooting while still, with your legs in the ski and trying to find the best position. Yeah, that's hard. And that, you know, just definitely highlights the discrepancy in the classification because, uh, you know, prone, right? You have a tripod with your uh, elbows and then your hips are equally against the ground. But so like a double ant might be able to do that. And I think th they are able to, you know, get their hips to the ground. So I couldn't do that. So the higher level disabilities, you're really twisted. You're in a horribly uncomfortable position. You can't get both elbows on the ground, you know, and so it's, you gotta get it over with as quickly as possible. <laughs> you hope that you hit most of them and be ready to go to And move on, yeah. If you have to. Yeah. And, and we're talking so much about biathlon, which you really didn't even focus on biathlon. You went, what were your events in cross country? Were you, you were more of a distance person than you were a sprinter, right? Yeah, that was always the case. So yeah, it was, um, it used to be the two and a half, a five and a 10. So now I, the two and a half, that's what I did. And then Sochi, they got rid of the two and a half short and then they have a sprint, which is, anywhere from 700 to a thousand, you know, a K uh, course. So that was fast. I think they kept it the 5K and now the distance is 12K. So those are the three cross country races. And yeah, I definitely much prefer the distance races. And I always have, you know, I think it's also behooved me with age, right? Uh, the distance comes, but yeah, even when I first started, I, I definitely preferred the longer races. Did you really? See, I, I don't really understand that. Oh, because <laughs> you get going. You weed it out. Yeah, it's attrition. Well, that's, yeah. that's what happened to me. I got weeded out. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you guys go have, have fun. Have a, have a good race. I'm going to stay here. Yeah, yeah. So go with your strengths, right? <laughs> 
Exactly. So you did, so you did, uh, so you did two cross country before you did a summer games, right? So two winter games, you did both Torino and Vancouver. And, yep. and so what, so then was it a relief for you to actually get back into, into the hand cycling? I mean, hand cycling seems like it was really the first, the thing you gravitated toward, right? Yeah, it's definitely my love for sure. Uh, it was exciting, not really a relief. I was, I was excited that I had an opportunity to fit into a classification that, you know, would be represented at London and, you know, all the hoopla around London, you know, that was a thrill. So I think it was 2011, I started with the national team and I did well, right? This is my sport and I love it, right? I think we all know when you love it, you're just that much more uh, prone to success. So yeah, I, I was riding high, winning and yeah, in London. Yeah, I've got some medals in London. That was and kind of funny too on the hand cycling side, on the female hand cycling side too, because you're then coming from the winter to hand cycling from Nordic, but then Muffy Davis was coming from Alpine to right. hand cycling as well. And were you guys in the same class or were you in different classes or how did that work? She's in a different class than I am. And, but so like the time trial would be separate and then we'd race together in a road race. So depending, like the World Cup, we each had our own medal opportunity, but at the games, they were combined because they have to consolidate uh, for medal events, so. Okay, so then, so then you, were, you had two silvers there, and so the two of you were on the podium together. For the road race, yeah. For the road race, okay. Yep, yep, yeah. So she and I are very different in our style. So her alpine skiing, really. So she's a great bike handler, right? Um, no fear. She could take the, you know, the sketchy line and pull it off. And, you know, that's not my strength. But my strength is very much the endurance, the hills, you know. And I could, you know, just zip up hills. And so um, I think one of the coaches called me the diesel. And she was the... Ferrari or I, I can't remember the, you know, she's a sprinter. She's, you know, power for sure. But right, yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. How, how did that work out? Like at training camps, did you, because you, you would go to training camps together. Would you end up being together? Or was it one of those that it was like the, the tortoise and the hare kind of thing where you guys might meet? No, I mean, it wasn't that you know, Not the, pronounced. the disparity wasn't that pronounced at all. Yeah. And then training camps, right? You're training, right? So you're doing, you're either doing long rides or short rides or practicing your sprints or whatever your, your efforts are. Um, so yeah, I don't remember it being an issue at, at training camps at all, <laughs> but yeah, but you know, I knew it, you know, I, you don't want to leave it to a sprint with Muffy. She's going to pull it out. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is again one of those things that's that's really easy similar to the biathlon that it's easy to say well don't leave it to a sprint and it's like okay if i don't leave it to a sprint that means that i have to go out really hard at some point prior to the sprint to take the sprint out of her so you're you're out there on your own just just grinding it out just hoping pick <laughs> the right time to right? right it's strategic and then knowing you know it's an individual sport but you really need to know right you have to be a smart racer in a road race yeah right did you ever did you ever were you ever jealous of those of those sprinters like watching like the tour and stuff like that i mean like the sprinters get some of that some of that glory but then if you have a breakaway you're on your own and you get all the glory so yeah, no, I, I, I never, jealousy never was what came to mind. It was just, for me, it was just something, it was good to have an area to work on. And, you know, I absolutely improved my sprinting and my power, you know, from when I started, I could spin forever, super high cadence, go forever. And so really working on your weaknesses, right? That's what it all is, right? So pushing bigger gears for longer times, harder, yeah, power. Which is also part of competition too, because if you're just out there on the bike path or on the beach or whatever you are over in, uh, in California, you're just doing what you do. 
And then right. all of a sudden you get into a race and go, oh, huh, there's something else I need to add to my, my bag of tricks here in order to exactly. really be successful. Yeah. And, and so you went through that. And then in 2013, that was, or yeah, 2013, that was, that was kind of the end for you, right? But you, you were super successful at the, at the world championships, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was a great year. I won, I, I won everything that year which I think is why I uh, was nominated for Sportswoman of the Year. Um, yeah, I did. I did, and I loved it, and it was, was great. Was that but a surprise, or was that not, or, or did, is that what you That thought? I won? Yeah. Did you think that going in, that you were in position to win? You know, I just was really in tune to my fitness, and, you know, it was, I just maximized, you know, my training, and, yeah, I think as veteran athletes, you really know, you know, your peaking style and your diet and the mental game and how to play that game a little bit better. And I think I was just really aligned and really in tune and it just felt, it felt good. It felt easy, you know, and yeah, you I wish I could get back there. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's always, there's a lot of work that goes into being to get that prepared. And it doesn't last. It takes a lot of building to get there and you can lose it really quickly. What was your typical training like? Can you tell people what, what you had to do? Like what's a week for you, like a typical week kind of thing? <laughs> for cycling? For cycling, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I rode my bike a lot, you know, and I've been thinking I still ride and now I'm very much mentally, you know, on the beach and I like the trees and the scenery and, you know. That's why I love it. Uh, so I think about, you, you know, what was that so different? And it's not that I did so many hours. And um, initially, early season, you do a lot of hours, right? Maybe 15-hour weeks. Um, and then you tail back. But you really want more quality and really more efforts, uh, more power uh, intervals, you know, and, and being able to, um, to sustain those power longer and really you know what you see at like the tour de france these professional riders are the ability to you know press and come off and press again right and um press and come off like like put in a surge and then and then be able to surge again kind right, of right right so you can Which go full gas and recover yeah. right exactly so having your body being able to be ready for that so the training was a lot of intervals so maybe i would ride a typical day would be 90 minutes two hours but i would have a um, 30 minutes of interval sessions that i would do maybe a long ride on saturday but. and were you based on speed were you based on power how, how were you gauging your training yeah, time and power. Time yep. and power. Yeah, okay. not distance. Right. And so power so power is based on on a power meter so it's a so it's a device that, that is on your on your chain ring effectively that that determines how much power you are putting into the pedals to to make them go further and that's that's become the more more of the scientific way of of training and staying within this zone and within that zone and and when you're going fast and then then you know it's it's kind of funny because when you look at that it does become scientific right it seemed like Very. when we were younger it was it was it was about heart it was about like well, well it's gonna hurt for everybody you just have to you just have to press through it and you just have to go harder. <laughs> yeah. and, and this you have actually like empirical numbers that are saying this data says this is where you are this is what you're doing and and it's and did it ever what i have not had much experience with the powder meter but but did it did it get to that point where you could kind of give yourself a break where you're like where you're saying oh you know i didn't i didn't quit it was just i reached i reached my threshold i reached my max and that's what i can do could you reconcile no. that or or how did that work you know, I, I think that is an issue for some athletes. Uh, for me, I very much was about the feel, very intuitive. And so I am not one that would, you know, in training, I would very much follow my power meter and my numbers. And you got to stay within your range for a certain amount of time, back off and do it again. Uh, but in a race, 
it's I didn't look at my power meter at all. It was really you and all that work leads up to you know, having the confidence and knowing your body and knowing what you can do and, and going by feel. So, um, yeah, no, I, yeah, it, it is. And honestly, it's way even more scientific now than there's, you know, wireless shifting, which I didn't have when I was racing and, um, uh, and coming from cross country where you don't have power, you don't have any measurable output at all. And it's intuitive, right? That's only it, but how do you know when you're making progress, you know? Right. So, so it was intuitive. So would you look at anything when you race? Would you look at speed? Would you look at, was there any input that you said, wow, we're going much faster right now than I thought we should, or, or, or than I usually go or, or something. Did you have any of that input that, huh, I'm in trouble? Maybe or? I would like in a time trial in a road race, it's so different because you're with other people. And so you're really playing that, game more than you know numbers but a time trial you know if it's an out and back you know maybe at the turnaround you know for me i always had a goal i need to be at you know this time at this mile um you know something like that but you know so i would allow myself okay you know when i get to halfway or last 5k you can look at your meter see if you're on you know but in a race, hopefully you have a coach telling you, you know, step well, that it was up. Gonna be my next question, <laughs> right? Because you get that, like in the tour, these guys have the coach in their ear the whole time. And it's kind of, in some ways, it seems like it can be helpful. And in other ways, it seems like it can be completely detrimental. Like, I mean, we saw like the second to last uh, stage of the Tour de France this year. I don't know if you watched it, but like, the time, trial. the time trial, the uphill time trial, and he's going through that uphill time trial. And it's like, you don't, you don't want to get those, those splits. You don't want to know where you are. Cause it looked like it just got more and more disheartening for him as he was going and it, and he ended up losing a lot of time. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So it could be, and again, it's like your mental preparation and uh, I know here in the U.S. we have sports psychologists and, you know, on the trips that are working with you at the camps and along the way. And what's your deal? What's your hang up? Is it negative chatter? Is it I get distracted? I miss the turn, you know. <clears throat> so you really, you know, it's about knowing yourself and knowing your strengths and the weaknesses that you might be prone to and working on that. You know, the mental game is cannot be underestimated I, I really have learned that so in every sport totally it can make a break it absolutely yeah we spend so much time on the physical side of it and so much less on the mental side that ultimately determines your success but you know and, and it, it is changing now it there's more there's more opportunity there are more opportunities there what did how did it work because so so i mean you went through some serious stuff i mean you went you were you were sportswoman of the year uh and then and then then you went to sochi and competed in sochi yes. 14 yeah uh -huh. and then and then you had uh stage three colon cancer after yeah. you came back from sochi so this is like you know, from, from the very high down to the very low as you're concluding your career. So what, what happens? What kind of state of mind? What do you, because it's, it's always hard to finish your career, isn't it? I mean, you finish your career, but if you finish your career because you're sick or, or if you get sick after you decide you're going to finish your career, it makes it much harder to figure <laughs> out what you're going to do next. What was what was going on in your mind and, and what kind of a plan did you come up with? I wish I had a plan, actually. You know, it's sort of, it, life gives you your plan, right? So uh, I knew I was, you know, done after Sochi. And then, so I was diagnosed um, in September, right after, um, after that. But we had just moved and... I just, you know, left sport. And so, like you say, all those transitional support systems were not there. So I, I wasn't at my 
work. And now it was really about just how, how do I, how do I manage cancer, you know, and what do I have to do? So not dissimilar to when I broke my back and, um, it started out easier than it finished as I think it is for most chemo treatments. Um, but yeah, so I had surgery and I had a bowel resection and that was um, successful and that went well. And I had to do 12 weeks every other week of treatment that, you know, does get, um, uh, you know, uh, subsequently worse, a lot worse. So like by March, I was pretty, Pretty, pretty spent. Yeah. Yeah. But What's, do you end up learning? Like I look back on, on the time after my accident as probably the most powerful that I was, I ever was in my life. And, and part of it was this sense of recovery that the recovery is really the only focus. And how can I direct all of that energy into that? You went through that same kind of thing at the end of your career. Is there something that you ended up taking away from that journey, that cancer journey? Because you've, you've talked numerous times about grit. You keep mentioning grit. I'd imagine that grit was a part of that, but did you take anything from that cancer journey to the rest of your life or something that's a reminder today? Gosh, I think I still am trying to decipher that lesson, but very much you know, life is precious in the moment. And I have a, a young child and it was really about surviving. And so I really am very much uh, interested in the grit. And Angela Duckworth does a lot of uh, work in the educational system about grit and resilience. And, and I'm fascinated by it because some people have it, some people don't, some people can learn it um, and how that helps you resili be resilient and, and move on. Um, so for me, it was sort of a chance to stop, breathe. What's next? You know, what's your, what's next in your pathway for life beyond sport? So it was sort of an opportunity, I guess you could say in a, in a way. A little change in your perspective. And you mentioned that you have a son, uh, Henry, who's now in eighth grade, you said? Yeah. Eighth grade. Yep. Wow. Okay. Right? I know. I'm probably more more astonishing <laughs> for you than it is for me, but I don't see him all yeah. that. <laughs> but yeah. what, what's the story that you tell him? It, do, does, it, does your experience change the way that you tell your story to him or, or that you're trying to educate him, help educate him? I don't know that it's changed, but, and I think it's true for overcoming illness, but as well as sport and that drive and focus is you have to try and, you know, nothing venture, nothing gained sort of perspective that um, the bare minimum is not enough. You have to keep trying. You have to, find opportunities and not obstacles and I think I say that every day and I get the eye roll but I, I feel like it's very true and very applicable because I've lived it you know and um, so I don't I spare him the lecture of you know when I had to do this but really pointing out through sport or through illness that it doesn't happen without intervention you know, I, I, I believe I Without intervention. What do you mean? Like when you, uh, for sport, you know, you do the training and you train hard because you want to be the best. If you train mediocre level, then you'll be a mediocre athlete. Um, but for illness, right. You have to actively participate in the recovery process and help yourself, you know, eat the right foods, get out and exercise and, you know, if it's a mental thing. So, cause it got kind of dark for me, like, where am I going? You know, what now? And really persevering and try harder. Yeah. Just continually trying to be better. And um, yeah, that's my lesson for him a lot. <laughs> the, the grit was part of what made you successful as an athlete as well, right? that you felt like you were willing to, is there, when things get difficult, is, is there a story that you tell yourself? Is there a reason why you're doing what you're doing and, and that helps you power through that? Oh, definitely. Um, and it's very much about the outcome, you know, 
that I can overcome it. I'm not going to be a victim. And, you know, so it just it depends on the situation, of course, if it's sport or career and how I'm very goal oriented. So how can I get there? So I think that is, you know, the story that I tell myself is, you know, for some reason, oddly enough, I've always had confidence, you know, I believe in myself that I can overcome cancer or I can win this race or I can, you know, whatever, find a, you know, a new career or whatever it is. And I believe that, I believe that deeply. And that's the story that I tell myself. And so there's a way to be successful and you're going to figure out what that way is. And that's uh, when things, because it's so easy, right, to be the armchair quarterback kind of thing and go, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. And it's like, yeah, when you, when everything is calm and nice and comfortable, it's easy to make the decisions, you know, but, but when you're stressed and when you're pushed to that very limit, that's when you have to make those decisions. And, and it sounds like for you, that's when it clicks in of like, oh, now it's real. Now it's real and I have to make that decision. How has that helped you with some of what you're doing now to be an advocate and, and helping athletes in terms of careers, in terms of their visibility, in terms of a variety of different things? You know, as an OT, we used to do this exercise. So I worked in mental health for a bit in, in um, Santa Cruz, and it was uh, about how, you know, what shapes your view or what drives your actions in life as a person. And it's really about your values. And so certain people have different values, whether it's financial or friends or, um, you know, religious or however. And for me, and I've known this for a while, is it's very much about a justice. You know, I, I value that very, you know, and not so much being a rule follower. About just yeah, having justice, having having things be right and just. And if they're not, then what can I do to improve that situation? So that I think very much drives my role as an athlete advocate. And what's the right thing to do? You know, and I, I know that sounds so trite and simplistic, but you know, right now, given the aftermath of gymnastics and, you know, some of uh, these stories that we hear and, um, you know, it's how can athletes be heard and respected and I, that's the right thing to do. And I got into athlete advocacy, you know, after, uh, uh, after I retired and in 2016, I was elected in Rio for the IPC Athlete Council. But I've learned so much and really um, more so now value the justification of why that needs to exist and why there does need to be athlete advocacy. And, you know, if it's advocacy, for me, it's athlete advocacy, but it, you know, obviously there's people that exist in the same role for um, healthcare or, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, you know, then that that justice drives me. You are an athlete. That's that's the, you know, it's part of who you were. It's part of who you are in your heart. And so you want to find justice on that level. And it's and so so it's helping athletes to to, you know, it's helping athletes in their performance, but it's also in, in a lot of ways, I mean, you've been involved in Paralympic sport, right? And we've seen a gigantic transformation in Paralympic sport. My first games was 1992 in Alberville. We didn't, we had an opening um, ceremony. So it was not in a stadium. It was, it was basically just all of the teams and they had these paragliders that would come down with every flag on, you know, with each individual flag. Uh -huh. That's wow. kind of you'd come up and it was kind of, it was a cool, it was a cool uh, ceremony, but it was totally different than what we're used to now on the Paralympic side, which is very similar to what happens on the Olympic side. And, and I signed some autographs and I signed a bunch of autographs in crayon for the children from these schools who are pretty much our fans. If, if it wasn't a friend or family, it was really some first grade class that came up to watch the Paralympics. And mm -hmm. gone from that to you were in London where people were waking up in the middle of the night to get into a lottery to try to get tickets to see the games in London. I mean, it's, it's, it's progressed so much. It's on television much more. 
and there's still a ways to go as well, right? I mean, it's it's we we see a lot. I mean, NBC here keeps keeps improving the amount of coverage, but it's not quite exactly the same as the Olympics. Is that some of what you're looking for? Is, is that same kind of justice and equality, or is it also justice and equality as far as the opportunity afterwards? Uh Probably more the latter for me. I mean, yeah, the whole coverage that, you know, I think that's a common question that I get around the world more from US athletes, to be honest, um, about having more exposure and having my sport highlighted. Um, so for me, and certainly in the role, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to all of a sudden be, you know, superseding the Super Bowl or what have you, right? Uh, but you just have to be the voice and keep speaking up for what you believe is right. And so it's just, it's every day, right? It's, and I love the expression for the games, you know, the Olympics, uh, it's every day, it's not every four years, right? Because you're doing the training, you're doing the work, you're doing the prep work. So as far as that awareness, it globally, yeah, it, it happens. You have to work at it every day. And whether that's educating your school or, you know, uh, the alumni is a great uh, useful tool for that to share the history of, you know, what it was like in 92 and the progress that has been made and where we want that to go. And um, that's, I think, why it's so important to be an athlete advocate in the world of sports because you can't lose that voice and that push for direction, certainly in the para space. It's funny. You mentioned something that was really interesting there. You've had, you've definitely had a lot of success. I mean, a couple of silver medals and five world championship gold medals. And so you've been really successful, but you also said that it's, that it's the everyday. When you look back on your career now, do you look back on, the days that you were most successful? Do you look back on, on those, those, those days, just the showing up every day and, and doing your training or potentially those transformational days where something went wrong and you had to figure it out? What, which days do you look back on? Yeah. So I, um, Rode out, you know, I lived outside of Denver. And so I think of the every day, I think of the, the, my, bike routes that I would do or the time trial series down at uh, Cherry Creek and um, my best time. I can still tell you my best time at Cherry Creek. And um, so I like thinking of those building blocks, you know, certainly London was wow. Right. And I, I can think of that and feel that joy, you know, this moment. Uh, but it's for me, it's, it's those every day. It's that how am I, when am I going to work out? How am I going to, you know, cover my childcare or how am I going to, you know, do my intervals or, you know, I'm very much focused on that, you know, breaking it down. Well, it's a, it's a lifestyle. Cause I had somebody at one point who asked me, what do you, what do you miss? And I think that the, the assumption is that you miss the glamor. You miss mm. the being on television. You miss the being on the podium and and I, I said to her, I, I was like, I, I miss the two a days. The training. And, yeah. And she, like, I was crazy. And I was like, no, it's it's that's when the transformation happens. That's when that's when you can dream. That's when you're that's when you're most excited about what you're doing. And for me, it was probably similar to you. Well, you were probably more fit coming out of Nordic season, going into biking season, but for me, coming out of ski out of alpine skiing season. And going into wheelchair racing season, it was like, okay, let's, what can I do to try to get into shape relatively quickly right now? But that's where you're, that's where you think, I'm seeing some gains. I'm seeing, and the gains are the things that are really more intoxicating than any metal, aren't they? Definitely. Yeah. And the exhaustion, like sleeping, like, I know right now there's several sleep studies out that are quite popular and, you know. Um, always been a great sleeper. Like I was all, you know, I brag about how much hours, how many hours I get, not, you know, some people, oh, I only sleep four hours. I always think how horrible, you know, do they not use their body physically to 
demand more sleep. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I definitely miss that. Is that part of a message that you communicate now? I mean, do you get an opportunity to tell people that, no, this is the important part, or even, even with Henry, right? The important part is the, is the work that you're doing and being exhausted at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that cycle of, you know, you have to work hard and then you recover. And that's how, that's how you progress. That's, I think that's true, you know, in, athletics and overcoming illness, right? Or working at a job, right? You do the work and then you recover and then you do a little bit better the next day. So I think that's the human condition. You are a, you're a goal-oriented person. What are the goals right now? Do you, do you, I'm sure you have goals. What are your goals? Yeah, so I got into a master's program, the MBA program through the wonderful USOPC uh, partnership that they have with online uh, school in DeVry. So I'm finishing that up and staying with health uh, uh, administration. So my goal is to return to OT work with health administration to uh, be more of a management position and or be able to flex from patient care to administration and public health. Awesome, and how much time do you have left in your MBA program? So I have one more eight week session, but yeah, so I could go, I mean, I've kept up with my OT stuff, so I, I can work PRN, uh, but I have to say that I'm, again, back to my goal, like I'm all about my schoolwork and yeah, so I'm pretty focused on that. So I haven't been working. So I'm really wanting to finish my schoolwork and, and you know, take and care so of my full -time. family. You've been a full-time student. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And moving in. This is this is absolutely awesome. Thank you, Monica, for joining us. We're we're excited yeah. to follow you and see see what you're going to do next. But also thank you for all the work that you're doing for athletes. And it is a single-minded focus. I mean, in a lot of ways, being an athlete is probably the most selfish thing that you can do. That sleep, eat, train, everything is all focused on one thing. And sometimes the idea of the future gets missed. And so it's great for you to, for people like you to help the athletes to have a better plan as they're moving along and as they're, as they're moving into whatever is going to be next without really having an idea oftentimes of what's going to be next. And so giving them that opportunity, that is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for well, I guess it's not quite dinner time yet, right? No, so this is, no, we'll, we'll get you out for dinner time. So thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you sometime relatively soon. And thank you all for, for joining us for another episode here of the Name Tags Chat Podcast. You can watch it tomorrow. If you only saw parts of it, you can go and it'll actually be archived on the One Revolution page on Facebook. So you can go to the One Revolution page. You can go and check it out. Monica, you can go and check it out and see, see how I did. Uh, or you can go and watch it on YouTube. It'll take a little while for this to get uh, uploaded onto YouTube, but we will upload it onto YouTube. And again, it's on the One Revolution channel. So thank you, Monica, for joining us. And thank, thank you. you for doing it. I appreciate you inviting me and being able to share my story and my goals. So thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you all. Take care.